You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Some people think all great books should start with a dare. And those folks can't be big readers. Because really, when was the last time you read a book that began with a dare? Well, this one does. And that's not some ham-fisted gambit to position it as great. Because we just established that only half-literates conflate opening dares with greatness. So it's truly just a simple dare. And it's this. I dare you to finish the fucker. And let's be real, you probably won't. It's 547 pages printed, after all, which is to say any number of locations, sections, or lit nodes in your e-reader. And its obnoxious length is nothing compared to the disquieting truths it reveals about a popular social-slash-messaging-slash-hookup platform that humanity already spends 11.2% of its online time engaged with, about who really built all that and why, about who's listening and what they're recording, and... Here's the part that may smart a bit. How terribly uninteresting they almost certainly find you. There's also some truly scary stuff you just don't need to know about the February bombing in San Francisco, about how it actually saved lives, lots of them and quite possibly your own, and about how moronically close we came to nuclear war with China on a recent winter's day. Spoiler alert, not my fault. You don't have to know any of this. And ignoring the hidden ugliness we can't do much about makes life easier. So if you tend to avoid facts like the age of the kid who stitched your favorite blazer just outside of Phnom Penh, or how athletically a certain ex once cheated on you, or how painful and scary the last few days of most human lives are, then for God's sake, put the book down. Then do yourself a big favor and catch a movie. A numbered sequel, say, starring cartoon men invented to distract tots during the Roosevelt era. You'll find that plenty challenging and much more fun. It'll also be over sooner, leaving you free for more numbered sequels, or maybe some of the light sci-fi written for the bright teens and dim grown-ups we euphemistically call young adults. Are you still there? Rob Reed founded Listen.com, which built the pioneering online music service Rhapsody and created the unlimited subscription model since adopted by Apple, Spotify, and others. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller Year Zero, a work of fiction. The author of Year One, a memoir about student life at Harvard Business School, and Architects of the Web. His new novel is After On. Thank you for joining me, Rob. Thank you for having me. This book is lives and breathes in Silicon Valley. You lived and breathed in Silicon Valley. Was there a specific experience that you had during your tenure starting up and working in Silicon Valley that led you to write a book about artificial intelligence? No. I mean, I wish I could tell you, yes, there was the day the computer I was programming became sentient and started dictating things to me, and I shut it down to save the world. Um, But if that happened, I probably couldn't tell you about it anyway. So in either case, I'm going to deny it. Uh, No, it was really um, just the sweep and the scope of the many years that I spent as, you know, a mid-level marketing grunt in a giant company, and then later as a venture capitalist, and then later as an entrepreneur, and just the whole mad tapestry 
of life here and work here and how they intersect and what we do here has always been really inspiring to me um, on a positive level. And there's also things about it that I think particularly recently um, have become rather negative. And I feel that, you know, I'm probably better positioned to capture all that lunacy than most science fiction writers because very, very few science fiction writers have founded companies. In fact, I can't really, it's an unusual thing. There's a lot of um, founders, CEOs who have gone on to write great books about business, about their life philosophy and so forth. I don't know any who write fiction. And unfortunately, a lot of those who write fiction about our world um, do it having never spent a day in a startup. And I think that I'm not going to name names because I don't like to, you know, I don't know, cite other authors from when I think that they're being lazy or they're doing a poor job. But I think that a lot of stories that have been set in startups and startup culture recently are very plainly written by people who are complete outsiders. It can be done well. I'll look, look at the HBO show, Silicon Valley. They do it magnificently, but it hasn't been done that well in literature yet. You know, uh, Silicon Valley is so big and so diverse, and you were talking about this novel. This is a big, huge novel. You have to... It, it's like you're corralling uh, in this giant herd of ideas and people and characters. Was this a deliberate decision to write uh, a giant shaggy dog kind of story? Or? No. It, I, so my previous book, um, which you mentioned in the intro, Year Zero, is a very playful kind of normally proportioned novel. I think it's like 300 pages. It's a tale of this vast alien civilization that's so into American pop music that they accidentally commit the biggest copyright infringement since the dawn of time and thereby bankrupt the entire universe. And I thought that this would be a similarly normal, normally proportioned and equally playful book. Now, there are a lot of playful dimensions to this book. Um, as you probably detected from that first page that I read, um, I've created a narrator who I personally often just want to throttle. But the voice of that narrator is is comedic, and there's also a lot of layers beneath it that I won't get into that, you know, that power that voice. So there's a lot of playfulness in the book, but it became a very, very serious rumination as I started on my first draft. I started realizing as I did research for the book that I'm genuinely kind of freaked out about what could go wrong with artificial intelligence should it, you know, become super intelligent. Um, as I got deeper into the book and the research, I realized that I'm really inspired and excited about synthetic biology, but I'm also quite nervous about what could go wrong there. I acquired a real fascination for quantum computing as I was writing it. I'm really interested in nihilistic terrorism because I spent a lot of time in the Middle East early in my adulthood. And so all these threads started coming together and the result was, you know, a pretty ambitious book, quite a bit more ambitious than what I set out to write, um, with lots of, uh, in, in amidst the playfulness, which leavens the darkness, a great deal of dark and serious issues and a fair amount of science and technology that I hope I stitched in in a way that's accessible to anybody, and I think I did. Um, but so yeah, it grew, it grew immensely, and its scope grew immensely, and it was uh, 14,916 pages when I was done with the first draft. Maybe not that long. Um, but it had to go on a crash diet when, when it was done, and it, I think it, it was a successful crash diet. But no, I, I had no idea the scale of what I was working on when I typed the first few words. 
You know, one of the things I, I, I love so much about this novel is this is the penultimate work of what I would call dry science fiction horror. <laughs> science fiction horror, uh, you might think of as about machines like attacking you and drilling you or deciding to dis dissect you. This is a novel where what is absolute, where there's no real um, that kind of violence, like you might yeah. find in a, one of those wonderful old John Shirley stories. Now, what the, but what is absolutely terrifying in this novel and constantly and consistently is are the concepts and you you were talking about the playfulness you have an extremely dry dry sense of humor it's very very funny but you'll tell us something terrifying <laughs> constantly well, thank so, you. talk about creating dealing with concepts that are themselves more terrifying than like uh, say being in an auto accident well, so it's interesting. Um, the the without doing going into any spoilers, um, the book is about a, an emergent super AI that is you know is willful and has opinions and has its own goals and its own objectives. Um, and I was as I was going through this, I was like, you know, what could be with my playful hat on, right? And, and so there is always the the horror, but also sort of the playfulness. And I was like, okay, in a sort of playful manner. What could be more terrifying than a genocidal Terminator that wants to kill us all? And the immediate thing that popped into my head was a super intelligent, hyper-empowered 14-year-old mean girl. And, um, you know, being the product of public schools and having suffered through three years of middle school, we called it junior high school back in the day, yeah. um, Obviously, a little bit less frightening than Arnold Schwarzenegger in Terminator 2, or actually Terminator 1, uh, to go a little geeky. But, but nonetheless, there's something very frightening about that concept, because, you know, imagine if the person who dominated and terrified your junior high school, or middle school, if you're younger than me, you know, had super intelligence and de facto omniscience. And so that's one thing that kind of I leaned into it. And then, you know, another thing that is, but but when you go down the, the path of, of super AI and how it could spin out of control when it decides that it has goals, if and when, that are orthogonal to our own, there are all kinds of nightmarish scenarios that are far scarier than any vampire werewolf story because this could be our near future. And so I grappled with that in the book and I grapple with that frankly every day as a, just as a person <laughs> because it's something we need to be aware of. And um, then the synthetic biology side of it, I, I've, it, it's just something that's become a real big fascination of mine recently. And um, there's so much enormous good that can come out of this but so much can go wrong it's it's almost like nuclear times 10 because like some significant good came out of nuclear era i mean we have nuclear energy which is non you know which is good in greenhouse gases we have nuclear medicine but it's not as sweeping as the panoply of benefits that we potentially stand to reap from synbio and so the 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 momentum that's going to take us, I think, down a path of developing synthetic biology very, very rapidly is overwhelming. It's much bigger than the, you know, the force that dragged us down the path of, of commercializing and productizing nuclear. But man, the things that could go wrong, it's a science fiction writer's dream. 
<laughs> you know, uh, synthetic biology, I've always, I, I really love your take on this because for me, uh, the um, problem with synthetic biology, if, if you think about the way the world looked before the Industrial Revolution mm -hmm. and the way it looks after, is there's a bunch of trash and useless crap and garbage and stuff that still sort of works that just has litters the landscape and we're completely we're completely immune to it we don't even notice it anymore yeah. and if you think about well what happens when all that stuff is alive yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's what we're really headed for aren't we well it could be i mean there will be there will be you know there will be a lot of waste products <laughs> and things that have gone past their sell by date that that we make that live <laughs> And yeah, no, it it will be it will be very very transformative to our ecosystem on on a very very deep and permeating level, and let's hope we get it right. I the uh, people in the startup at the beginning of this book, you have just a really a bunch of fun. So talk about creating Mitchell. I think he's a great character. I have he's really fun to be with. So. Did you base him on somebody you knew? Not really. Um, nobody in the book is at all based on real folks. But I guess inevitably, you know, folks are composites of the people mm -hmm. that one knows. And I'll, I'll admit, um, there are elements of my own experience that are deep in Mitchell, although I think he's a very, very different person from me. But there's a couple things that are very shaping to him. And probably one of the important ones is that he's a, a very non-technical person who gets, you know, emotionally and almost spiritually smitten by the tech industry and what it can accomplish, starting pretty early in life. And though he can't tell a bit from a bite, he was drawn out to Silicon Valley, you know, to chase his passion and to chase his dreams. And through a series of events, he became a founder CEO. That was basically my background. So I um, founded, as you mentioned in the intro, uh, an online music company that ultimately built the Rhapsody Music Service. Um, when I was in undergrad, I studied modern Middle Eastern history and Arabic, which is not a particularly useful study program coming out here. But, you know, Mitchell lived that life of like, oh my God, I'm in way over my head, but I swear to God I have things to contribute. And that is a big part of his experience. Now, he also has an experience that I don't have, thank God, at least not yet, let's hope I don't, which is he's suffering from a terrible neurological disease, which is very, very shaping um, to his life. Now, I've never experienced that, but I have diagnosed myself using Wikipedia many times <laughs> with probably every neurological ex disease that exists at one point or another. Like, my eyelid feels funny. What could this be? Oh, Lou Gehrig's disease. So I kind of feel like, and it's funny, I was never a hypochondriac until Wikipedia came along. And I went through this sort of two-year period where I, I, I diagnosed myself really quite authoritatively with every disease. So there's a little bit of that. Now, the other thing is our superintelligence feels uh, herself to be an orphan for reasons that I won't get into because it might be spoiling some elements of the plot. And I was actually, I'm adopted. And so I was, by very hair-splitting and technical definition, I was an orphan for a few first few months of my life as in foster care. And although I had, I was, I was adopted into a, an amazing situation with a lovely nuclear family that is, you know, not an uncommon configuration and a pretty happy childhood and all that the knowledge that you have throughout your life that you're, you do come from this sort of unmoored 
beginning always informs your perspective to some degree. And so I think that, you know, a lot of my feelings about parental ties and familial connections that are baked into the book, there's something very personal about that as well. The social dynamics of a startup are really fascinating because it's a combination of, you know, people's, uh, the participants' innate part, uh, personalities, but also they're immediately subject to the economic forces and the market forces and the marketing forces and all the money aspects of Silicon Valley are just wedded into that. So talk about creating the dynamic of the, the people in Mitchell's startup and also in the service you create called Flutter. It's called Flutter, yeah. So there are two startups that have orthogonal experiences in the book. So there's Mitchell's startup, a real sort of sad sack company <laughs> called Giftishly. I, I just love Mitchell's startup. It was just so, it was really sad. It, it just made just me cry almost. It wasn't working out for these guys. So giftish.ly, um, Giftishly, there was that brief obsession with Libyan URLs before .io became the thing that everybody had to put at the end of their at the end of their name and so forth. So giftishly is the far more common Silicon Valley experience where, you know, some very smart, entirely well-meaning people get together around an idea that just doesn't cohere. And in their case, it was social gifting. And the idea behind social gifting, actually, I think I'm going to read a brief passage from the book again, because I worked very hard on my description of this terrible idea called, <laughs> called social gifting, Sorry for the brief pause. I know that can be edited. So this is a brief description of Giftishly and its concept, which I worked very hard on. I can't possibly top it speaking spontaneously. So Giftishly was an unremembered startup in the wholly forgotten realm of social gifting. Even the most obsessive tech historian would struggle to name the year when this concept briefly infatuated a luckless handful of able but misguided entrepreneurs. 20-something teen is close enough. So what is social gifting, or rather what was, or really what wasn't it? Well, its boosters reckoned that billions of people neurally lashed to their Facebook news feeds would eventually develop an uncontrollable urge to buy shit for each other. Having done so, they'd want to brag about their purchases. The joyous recipients would want to brag right along with them, and a social gifting service would enable all this. Imagine an inbox cluttered with posts like, Samantha bought Jeffrey a giftishly certificate for a mochaccino. And you've glimpsed the daring vision. Only time will tell if social gifting's pioneers were dead wrong about everything or merely, and this is a huge badge of honor for Val Valley also rands, too early. So that's social <laughs> gifting. And that idea didn't work out for giftishly. Good, very smart people, as is you know, the case in most startups, they go through what's called an aqua hire, which is this mashup of acquisition and hire, which is what happens when a desperate and dying startup meets a giant, very successful startup that desperately needs a bunch of engineers. Now, this is nobody's plan A. It's nobody's plan D. So these things are always ugly. But basically, the giant buys the struggling startup 
basically to get its engineers. And so that's one Silicon Valley experience. My company was somewhere between that and the next one. So the next one is this diabolical social media called Flutter, P-H-L-U-T-T-R, because we know how to spell in Silicon Valley. And Flutter is this, this social media leviathan. It's, you can't call it a startup anymore. It succeeded so hugely, and it's come out of nowhere. And think of it as basically being kind of like Facebook, but with Uber's morals all wrapped up in this creepy <laughs> KGB-like secrecy. That is Flutter. And so Flutter is this opposite experience of just explosive growth, everything going right. My own startup was somewhere in the middle. We did, we did fine. We ended up selling our service Rhapsody, went on to thrive under you know its new ownership and grew to millions of subscribers and inspired lots of great companies like Spotify is essentially Rhapsody with a few very, very smart modifications. So we were kind of in the middle. And from that, I, I feel like I understand the spectrum of experience particularly because I've done some investing as a, as a tech investor, and I have definitely invested in my share of giftishlies. In fact, one of them was a social gifting company I will not name. Um, <laughs> so, You know, uh, for me, one of the things that I, I loved about this book, your approach and thoughts about the uh, process of narration. This is really a book all about narration. Then there are our own little monkey minds that are going all the time, and the other little monkey minds, and also using narration to tell stories. There are so many, there are different narrators in this book and different stories. So talk about that. You know, for me, narration is self-definition. If I ask you who you are, you are going to tell me a story, and it's going to be a great one. So... When we have a book that's all about narration, it's all about stories, this is really, in many ways, a book about the core of why people write. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting way of putting it. I I like that. I might repeat that, actually. So the narrative structures are unusual. There is, as you guys heard at the very beginning, there is a narrator. Uh, But this narrator is very, very hands-off, is absent, really, for most of the book. And and as you saw, the, the... tone of this narrator is very smug and deliberately rather grating, hopefully in a way that's entertaining. I mean, hopefully in the way that like, you know, you know, Eric Cartman, you know, we find him unbearable, but we can't get enough of him, you know, or kind of Grandpa Rick on Rick and Morty or to go further back, you know, Frank Burns on MASH. But I know that there's only so much of that we can listen to. And so the narrator actually says after just a few pages, you know, hey, I know my tone can grate a bit. I'm going to leave you alone now, but I'll be back to check in with you when, you know, when, when, they, when you least expect it, as the hitmen say. And so this is a pretty unusual thing where the narrator does come back with reasonable frequency and reminds you that this is, you are reading a narrated work, you. And then, so there's that, and I think that's unusual. The story, about 80% of the book is a pretty standard narrative in that it's moving fairly linearly. There are flashbacks to 2002, but on and on it moves. But about 20 to 25% of it uses these very unusual narrative elements. So within the book, there are 18 Amazon reviews. And those Amazon reviews are actually core to telling the story, although when they first erupt in the book, they're kind of mysterious. You're like, why am I reading this Amazon review? Hopefully you're also saying, damn, that was funny. Yeah. 
And you're seeing that they're all written by the same person, and they're all written back in 2002 in the flashback section. There are excerpts of another novel, probably, I don't know, I don't know, five, ten, a dozen. There's a bunch of excerpts, probably probably about ten, excerpts from this, this mysterious second novel. And uh, I obviously wrote them, but if, if I ever finished the novel from which these are allegedly excerpted, uh, I'm pretty sure it would be the single worst science fiction novel ever written. It's really, really bad. I was thinking <clears throat> of Doc Savage. I read that. <laughs> I kept thinking, like, boy, I remember when I used to look at those books at Trader Joe's and, and the Trader Joe's when book racks when I was like, 15, you know, 12 or 15, thinking, boy, those look really too terrible, even for me. <laughs> it's pretty terrible writing in this particular novel within the novel. Now, again, that's mysterious when it comes up, but eventually coheres into you know who it is and why they're doing it. Uh, there's tweets, there's blog posts, there's um, SMS, there's lots of different bloggers, actually, um, some of them extremely voicey. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's a lot of different media types. There's articles that I attribute to the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and the San Francisco Chronicle. And it was really the narration tech, or you know, the the, the meta narrative, was really a bit of an attempt to recreate this bombardment that we have from lots and lots of different pieces of media that we stitch our, our own view of the world together from. When I was a kid, there were three broadcast channels, and the New York Times came, and it was a pretty you know, bipolar way of constructing a view of the world. And now we have this barrage of stuff. And so it's a little bit of a replication of that. It, it's like sitting down at your computer and having web pages, Facebook, Twitter, your email, and streaming TV yeah. <laughs> with three channels going on at once. Yeah, yeah. So it is that kind of barrage. And, you know, I replicated that to some extent. And it's interesting because the novel, although the earliest ones predate the 19th century, the modern novel is basically a product of the 19th century. You know, by, by the time, you know, 1899, New Year's Eve on 1899, most of what we think of as a novel had been sort of honed and, and I wouldn't say standardized, but it become, you know, a certain set of expectations had grown around it, both with readers and authors. And that was a time, the 19th century, of very little interruption. You know, you were living with a configuration of people, in many cases, perhaps most with your family, and you really got to know these people well. You know, you bought a 1900-page book by Charles Dickens, and that linearity was like, it's not like, oh my God, you know, you know, like, uh, the voice is going to be on, I'm going to set this thing down. Like, it was these very linear deep, deep relationships with your profession, with your town, with your community, with your family, with what little media you accessed. And so I I feel like, you know, it's time to throw a bunch of crap like Amazon reviews into a book. We don't live there anymore. Now, did any of those reviews actually appear on Amazon? All of them do. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, actually. Was it part of the writing process for the book? Or was it, I mean, they're hilarious. I absolutely love them. They're, they're just really brilliantly well done. Uh, was it done, uh, were they slotted up there as you were writing the book? Or was that just something that you did No. They're, they're, okay, so there's kind of a crazy story behind these reviews. So, um, as I mentioned, they're all in the flashback section of the book, mm-hmm. 2002, 2003. Um, 
Yes, I wrote those reviews. Yes, I posted them to Amazon. If you go on Amazon, you will see that they're all dated 2002, 2003. So yes, I posted those reviews over 15 years ago. <laughs> at the time... That is some masterful recycling, my friend. <laughs> at the time. Well, is it recycling or is it like boyhood? You know, for all you know, I started writing the book 15 years ago and ingeniously posted these reviews that we're going to fit into. Uh, yeah, so... The story behind the reviews is at the time, um, I was running Rhapsody, and I found that very stressful. I didn't, you know, I had, you know, 150 people working for me, high expectations for investors. It was post-dot-com bubble, mm. you know, so it's kind of oh. nuclear winter in terms of accessing capital, in terms of anybody thinking that the web was going to amount to anything. It was a tough time to be running a company. And so my form of therapy was... And I also had this like fantasy in the back of my mind, like someday I want to be a novelist. You know, it's like running companies sucks, at least in 2002. And so late at night, like my form of self-medication, <laughs> luckily it could have been all kinds of horrible substances. But what it was is like when I was done with my email, my managerial duties, I started writing these these insane Amazon reviews as an imaginary person. And my, the character that I created was Charles Henry Higginsworth III of Boston, Massachusetts. And what Mr. Higginsworth would do is he would start writing a review about some really random and usually like inherently funny product. And about a third of the way into it, he'd just do this 180 and start bitching about his life. And this autobiography slowly emerged. And it surprised me as much as it surprised any readers of my reviews that turned out Mr. Higginsworth was from this formerly very wealthy family, but all the money was gone and he was living in this crumbling old, you know, kind of ancestral home on Beacon Hill in Boston, but didn't even have the money to for the heating oil. And so he's always buying these like home repair books because he can't afford a plumber or an electrician and he's always screwing up. But he has this amazing, wonderful wife who's about half his age and Panamanian, Carlotta, and they've got two twins or four years old. And like, so this whole thing comes up. And I probably wrote 50 or 60 of these reviews. I almost became a top thousand reviewer. I was really excited because like people started following the reviews. Um, I can see why. <laughs> yeah, it was just kind of a lark. And then things got busy with work and I eventually set it down. And all these years later, I'm starting to write after on. And I realized I want a certain character who is kind of a mentor to some people, but he's really quirky and he's this way and he's that way. I'm like, oh my God. I want Mr. Higginsworth. And, 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 and his reviews are actually could fit into the story. So yeah, they're still all up on Amazon. And there's, there's, there's quite a bit, there are quite a few more reviews on Amazon that made it into the book. You have a wonderful character, not a person you'd want to count as a friend or even necessarily know, actually know, but he's fun to read about, Jepson. Tell us about Jepson. Oh, Jepson. So Jepson is the CEO of this social media leviathan called Flutter. Um, he has a dark and rather mysterious past that as I was writing it for the first time, frankly surprised me. So he has an interesting backstory. We first meet Jepson uh, in 2002 when he is the CEO of a failing, you know, pet food online company. <laughs> and there's like everybody, it's, it, it, and I, I, I own the fact in the book that this became a punchline for a half generation of entrepreneurs because there were so many pet companies that just face planted right at the end of the internet bubble. 
And like, and Jepson's was like in a in a in a crowd where the bar could barely be lower. His was like the worst. It was like it was like the fifth runner in a three horse race. And the only thing they had that was novel was like this subscription to kitty litter, which when you think about it is like a subscription to gravel, you know. And then they're they're shipping it out with overnight. And so it's just this terrible company. And we meet Jepson as he's having a showdown with his board of directors and he is so roguishly charming but just diabolical that he manages to turn this horrific situation of this meltdown company into a improbable and completely immoral payday for himself and that's not much of a spoiler because it's one of the early scenes and that's how we meet Jepson really so we meet Jepson then and then all these years later he's running Flutter and he is he, he's just awful. He kind of embodies most of what's wrong with bro culture, tech bro culture, right? But he does have a couple of redeeming elements. He's kind of grown into himself over the years. And so there are, there are more awful people than <laughs> Jepson in the book. I think if I ended up on a flight to London seated next to Jepson, mm-hmm. my initial horror would fade after about 20 minutes. And I'd realize this is going to be a really fun flight, actually. And I'm probably going to be absolutely smashed when we land in London. And he may end up with my wallet, but it's going to be a fun ride. You know, we one of the things this book does extremely well is to talk about um, just the the culture in Silicon Valley and you know the moral center of Silicon Valley, which is pretty soft and squishy, yeah. and easily moved. Yeah. <laughs> when you were writing about Silicon Valley, did you feel a little bit of you know biting the hand that that fed you? Not really. I mean, I think that um, you know, I think that my my passion and wonderment for what we do and mm-hmm. creating you know technologies that are radically transforming every quadrant of the world is magical and amazing. But mm-hmm. at the same time, I do feel that this wonderful thing that I've been a part of and plan to remain a part of at least peripherally because I do still get involved in startups in different ways is having a little bit of a moral crisis right now. And um, to put it mildly, and I think that if I, you know, in the in the four quarters of this book, I think if I were silent on that, I wouldn't be doing anybody any favors, you know? And I think that, you know, putting a playful spotlight on things that are wrong can be very, very effective. And playful is an important dimension. So I'm going to say something about my prior book, Year Zero. Um, I mentioned it, Aliens Love American Pop Music, the, the 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 core conceit is that we make the best music in the entire universe and music well, is no the, doubt. there's no doubt about that anybody who has listened to anything from classic rock to modern hip hop knows this and um and the aliens just all advanced sales just love our freaking music but then they find out that they've made this terrible copyright violation and you know the bad guy aliens are like we love the music as much as anybody but let's just destroy the planet get rid of the debt we got 22 million tracks now we don't need any more music from these people so it's playful but there is a very very serious underpinning critique of what i think is absolutely broken about copyright law and what's absolutely broken about intellectual property law in general so it, I, I gave a TED talk that was connected to the same theme. It didn't mention the book, but it was the same sort of playful dimension to it. And I was talking about how by American law, you could literally incur $8 billion of, of 
penalties and fees with a single iPod. This is in 2012. And what was amazing about the reaction to that talk, the first person that came up, and it, people laughed a great deal, people got the core point. I even got a standing ovation, which I'm very proud of. So people really dug it. And it was very playful. It was very, very funny. And at the end of it, the very first person who came up to me was one of the leading music industry lawyers who I knew from all my work with Rhapsody. And he hugged me. He said, that was brilliant. And I think when, you're, when you deliver harsh news in a manner that is playful, I think the message gets across a lot more than if you're doing it in this finger-wagging way. And so, yeah, I think that the, I, I am quite critical about certain aspects of Silicon Valley that I think have gone completely off the rails. But, you know, it's like one of the jokes is like everybody's like saying, that there's so many women in tech. There's, there's Marissa, who was at Yahoo for all those years. There's Cheryl at Facebook. And then invariably somebody's like, oh, and there's um, um, Meg, Meg Whitman. Somebody says, oh, yeah, Meg Whitman. And, and, you know... The fifth or sixth time I make that joke, I think the point starts getting across that we got a problem here with 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 gender and diversity and a lot of other things in the valley. But I I don't go on a ten page screed about that because I think people's eyes would glaze over and you know wouldn't get the message through to the people I'm trying to reach. You know, this book is a really brilliant look at our relationship with AI. Like many things, we look at AI and we see something like ourselves, only slightly better. <laughs> Maybe, but still controlled. Mm-hmm. Still yeah. Control. That said, there's no reason for that any artificial consciousness that may arise around us would even notice or have anything to do with us. Yeah. And I think that's the your thoughts about AI are really interesting because we're in a time now where uh, for many years it's been predicted that around this time AI would be technologically possible. Yep. And we have also, we have a lot of major public science figures, Elon Musk and Stephen Hawking saying, we better be afraid of AI, which is an interesting, I find that really interesting. I don't necessarily know that it makes me afraid of AI, but at least it makes me think about it. Yeah, and I think that the point that, you know, Elon and and Bill Gates is another and Stephen Hawking are making is is less that this is going to annihilate us all Mm -hmm. and more that, like, there is a very, very dramatic risk here and we need to start thinking about it now. So it's more like maybe putting your seatbelt on at the beginning of a journey where you really genuinely don't expect to wreck your car and hopefully, lo and behold, at the end of the journey, you have not. But you put your seatbelt on knowing that it's likely to be a wasted action, right? And I think that the, the people who are starting to talk about the phrases AI safety comes up a lot. Are, are wrestling with, with the reality that there is nothing magic or foreordained or, or unsurpassable about human intelligence. We are, if there's an intelligence continuum that goes somewhere from amoeba to humans, it goes far beyond us as well. And there's no reason why something can't be as ingenious in relation to us as we are in relation to amoeba. If you create a system, you know, a, a system of hardware and software that gets really good at rewriting itself and making itself better and better and better at what it does. And it gets especially good at, you know, creating a smarter AI. 
that can happen very, very quickly because we have Moore's Law and that thing can sort of spill itself out and occupy lots and lots of servers that are available on demand online. And it can iterate with such rapidity that it could go from like kind of sub-rodent intelligence to human intelligence, conceivably in a span of hours, certainly a span of weeks. And having done that, it's going to blow past human intelligence just as quick as, you know, a bullet train passes by, you know, a random uh, rock by the side of the tracks. Why is it going to stop? It won't. And so it is highly imaginable that you could very rapidly get to the place where that intelligence is as wise in relation to us as we are to bacteria. And we don't hate bacteria. We're descended from bacteria. There are grandparents, but we don't really think about their interests when we go about our business. You know, I hate them, but like, you know, if we're going to feel like disinfecting something, we're going to spray the spray. And if an AI gets to that level of intelligence, and I really do believe if it can become as smart as us, that is just the next step. And it's not a terribly long step. We can't even fathom what its goals would be. We can't even fathom what its objectives would be. And we can't really expect it to have any more you know, kind of, you know, uh, nostalgic connection to us than we have to nematodes or whatever we're most recently descended from. So it is a real, it's something we need to think hard about. Um, How do we align its objectives with ours? And by the way, do we really know what our own objectives are? And if we can't agree on that, you could get 20 people in a room and they will probably have 20 fundamentally different opinions on what humanity is for and what would be an optimal outcome for humanity you know we don't even yeah you know, like how do you get all that to line up in a way that has a good outcome is it possible i think so but it really behooves us to think very very hard about it starting hopefully well ideally quite a few decades ago but let's definitely start right now if we haven't yet you know you are talking about the spectrum of intelligence between a human and a bacteria and then the the human and the AI. What what that made me think was, the while the the AI might not care about us, and we might not care about the bacteria. The reverse is also true. The bacteria cannot conceptualize humans. There's no they, idea they, that we even they, exist. They, yeah, yeah. They, yeah, they don't even know. They, they don't care. They say, hmm, squashes. We don't care. Yeah. Tony Milmo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll divide and conquer. Uh, the same is going to be true of the AI. We may not even know it exists. Yeah. And that is the that is a, a point of worry because it could exist this moment. Right. And, and that is actually one of the arguments that's made in the book is I believe that if, you know, a kind of science fiction grade AI emerged and had self-awareness and had a very clear understanding about how it fit into our world... <laughs> Whether it wanted to be, you know, go all Terminator and kill us all, wanted to go all flutter and gossip about us, or just wanted to play, you know, go with Watson until the end of the time, or if it wanted to be our savior, whatever its objectives were, step one is the same, which is hide. You know, if I were a super AI and suddenly realized, here I am and this is how I work, um, I don't want them unplugging me. I don't want them tinkering with my brain. I don't want them telemarketing to me. Um, I'm just going to hide from these humans and bide my time and build my resources. And I think in the world of an AI, resources would be ever greater intelligence, ever greater access to, you know, to CPUs and memory and all the other things that make me go faster and get smarter. 
and I'll wait until I'm good and ready to reveal myself to humanity, and I may never even bother to. So yes, we could we could well be in the presence of such a such a consciousness now. I don't think we are. I think the technology doesn't quite support it, but I could certainly see us being in the presence of such an entity, you know, even 15, 20 years hence, and having no idea. You were talking earlier uh, about your experience in the Middle East, which also informs this book, and a certain kind of uh, religion. And I, I think that the religion <laughs> you've created in this book, it, it makes a terrifying amount of sense. It does, so yeah. The, for me, I, I think this is a gets back to your kind of dry humor, just the concept of that, or dry horror, just that yeah. concept of that religion is terrifying. Yeah, and it's um, it, it, there, there were a bunch of things when you write a book. So I, I jokingly say this book takes place nine seconds in the future. So you got to read it fast because <laughs> it, it's in the future when you read the first few words, and it, it's incumbent on you to read all 547 pages in less than nine seconds, or it's going into the past. So uh, I, I'm a little bit playful about that. But when you spend three ish years writing a book that is essentially set in the present day, things that you're writing about. Uh, that feel predictive either happen or fail to happen with like dismaying rapidity. And so it's like you're constantly like, yeah, I got to get this damn thing done. You know, and, and quite a few things that I was writing about did in fact kind of start occurring while I, I was writing. some of that. It was really fantastic to read that because I was thinking that science fiction so often wants to predict the future you managed to successfully predict, predict the present. The, the present. <laughs> yeah. but, but that, but given that the book was written in the past, that's a huge feat. Yeah, and there's, it, it there's a few things. Times. There's uh, a few things in there that I'm quite proud of. One that I have nothing but dismay about is the fact that in the book I depicted a world in which lone wolf terrorism really started to metastasize. And that was not so much the case three years ago, where, you know, we have seen in very, very, very recent history, you know, Belgium and Paris and Las Vegas and Orlando and, you know, the Christmas market in Germany and all the attacks in London and so forth of people who are distantly inspired by ISIS usually, or sometimes a guy named Anwar al-Awlaki, who is, is now dead, but he gave these sermons in very, you know, flawlessly American idiomatic English that inspired a lot of people. That really started mushrooming as actually the book was really in its final editing process. So I, I, that's something I take no delight in. I take horror in, and I really wish I had, had completely screwed that up. But going to what you were saying about this sort of very twisted vision of the afterlife and so forth that motivates some lone wolf, wolf terrorists in the book... Yeah, it is, it, it's, it's turned out to be very predictive, the lone wolf dimension anyway. And I think the philosophical dimension that's embedded in this take on religion, which, which speaks not only, it, it starts with a, 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 an imaginary Muslim movement in Chad in Central Africa, but it kind of spreads beyond Islam in ways that I unfortunately deem to be logical. Um, <laughs> if you believe a certain set of things that most living people believe, this kind of take on the end of one's life and the future of all souls can really lead you to some horrible actions. Um, so yeah, that, that's one part of the book that I sure hope doesn't come true. Um, for AI, I, re I remember 
Bad, bad, what was it, 2000, some, sometime when the very first uh, Singularity Summit was, yep. came around and I, I went there for NPR and did a little piece oh, cool. for that. It was, it, was, it was a blast. But I was always struck by, in that book, the, or in that event, um, the thrust of the talks towards the idea of what they called, you know, an electronic toddler. Now, on one hand, it's not so difficult to make a computer that can play chess really well, yeah. but to make a computer that can walk and talk and do what a toddler is was at that point impossible. And mm -hmm. now it maybe is it's maybe slightly more possible, but not exactly. Um, but the point being that, again, we see AI, it's turned on and it's itself and that's it. It's, you know, the giant computer, it's Colossus. Yeah. Uh, but if it's, if it's truly an intelligence, it's going to mature. Yeah. And that's a, a terrifying, much more terrifying uh, prospect. Well, it is, uh, unless, you know, some very, very smart and very, very benign people get involved in the parenting process, which is may or may not be something that happens in this book. Actually, definitely is something that happens in this book. And it particularly, you know, if there, there's, a, there's a major, major, you know, trend in all AI research is mimicking things that happen in our own brains, mm -hmm. you know, neural nets and so forth. And probably the most deep thinking or one of the three-ish most deep-thinking uh, people who have who have sounded an alarm about AI safety is a is a Swedish philosopher named Nicholas Bostrom, who's who who does his work out of Oxford now, and um, writes primarily in English. And you know he warned in his book, which was creatively titled "Superintelligence," um, a few years ago. It's a brilliant book. Um, I think he could have come up with a more chilling title. James Barrett wrote a great book called "Arnold." Our final invention. Now that's a title. <laughs> but anyway, Nicholas's book, Superintelligence, he he says repeatedly that one of the most dangerous things we could do is exactly what we are doing, which is to basically look at processes and connections and ways of information processing that occur in the human brain that we don't really understand, <laughs> but we know they work, so let's replicate that in software. And he's, he considers that dangerous because... That's when you build something from the ground up, you hopefully more or less know how it works. When you're mimicking something that you don't understand and it's something very powerful like the human mind, that's when you can suddenly have enormous strides being made that you did not anticipate that could be highly, highly problematic. Now, one byproduct of that could be that much of what makes us human gets infused in this digital consciousness. And that's something that I played with in the book. And so, you know, what makes us human is that, you know, sometimes we have all of these confirmation and other biases that Daniel Kahneman wrote about. We can be absurdly overconfident. We can suffer from humility deficits. Let's just call them that, to be polite to my super AI in the book. We can, you know, get lazy. We can get overconfident, all kinds of things. And we could very well, the digital intelligence could very well enter the world kind of with a blank slate of an infant psychology. Now, infants are, by evolutionary design, sociopathic. They really are intensely selfish critters because that's an imperative for the survival of our species. What can an infant do to repel the Visigoths or to raise a mud hut? Nothing. The, the infant needs to survive. So it is this completely non-empathetic 
you know, very, very selfish critter for a period of time, driven by nothing but this blind milk lust. And it's completely incompetent. It, it can't do, the infant can't do anything but squirm. So a sociopath that can only squirm is fine, you know? So it's not a big deal that infants are sociopaths. And then when they get to the point where they can contribute to their family and their clan and society, they start developing empathy and these higher things. Well, when the infant is the most powerful consciousness on earth, and it's a perfect sociopath because it's in this human-like infant state, it's a little more problematic. You better get some good parents on the case really quickly. <laughs> I, you know, uh, one of the things you talk about in this book is uh, the, the Sagan program, which <laughs> I thought... <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you got that, yeah. I thought that was, that was a lot of fun. Uh, so, did, you, did you notice what it was replaced by? Uh, Down the line, they, the new program was called Tyson. So <laughs> that's my little Cosmos joke. Very, very little joke, but yes. Yeah, no, yeah. I like that. Yeah, yeah. I forgot about that. So um, talk about this idea of the way the government, uh, this brings up, you know, you, do a, you have a lot of fun with conspiracy theories. Oh, yeah. And this book is just... Uh, breathing through them. Talk about uh, the joy of the modern conspiracy theory as a way of just uh, driving a plot and making the book really fun to read. Well, you know, we, we have found through the revelations of, of, of Edward Snowden <laughs> and, you know, some of the things that end up in WikiLeaks and so forth, that some pretty crazy stuff actually does go on. And I'm reminded of, I, I first encountered in a Nirvana song, I'm sure it was said by some 19th century writer, but just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not after you. And that's kind of a theme of this book. And so, you know, basically I, I dialed up a lot of the surveillance state elements that have been proven to be true. I embed them in the book. I embed, you know, it's all very much set and grounded in our world. So I embed you know, the, the the fact that Snowden made these revelations, the fact that these programs existed, the, the fact that American law changed in ways that sort of reined this in, all that is deeply embedded in the book. And what I basically said is, you know, if there were really smart and very, very capable people who I will add uh, in the book, and I think in real life, are genuinely deeply motivated by a burning desire to protect us. I mean, I think that that's really where most of this energy comes from, uh, even if some of the conclusions that are made and the actions are taken are, are you, one could really argue with. But if, if, if those people face the legal environment and the post-Snowden environment, what might they do? And I think they could do something really, really clever, which they do in this book, Rob says mysteriously. There are ways to monitor people with their consent, with their active consent. Oh, God. That's, oh, my God. And there, there is a, there's, a, there's a notion in the law uh, called consent searches. Mm -hmm. And I've seen, I don't know what the exact percentage is, a consent search is what happens where imagine you get pulled over and the police officer says, do you mind if I take a look in your trunk? You have every right in the world to say, yes, I mind, and you may not. And that's the end of that. But most of us don't know that. And so we say, sure, you can look in my trunk, or sure, I'll give you the password of my iPhone. Or they knock on the door and they don't have a warrant and they're at your house and they, do you mind if I come in and look around? You can say no, but most of us don't know that. So most of us say, sure, because it would sure look weird if I didn't let the cop come into my house, even though I've got a meth lab in the bathtub. You know, that, that might look weirder. But a crushing majority of searches that are actually carried out by law enforcement are consent searches. Now, I took this 
And I also took the fact that I don't know how many tens of thousands of words a week I click accept on without reading. <laughs> you know, but the, the modern EULA and user license agreement and privacy agreements, there's been a study done that basically indicates that most modern digital people would literally need to spend two to three months of their lives to simply read all the stuff that they click on without reading. Now, could that become an incredibly powerful way for, you know, spooks and government people to do consent searches? You bet it can. So I'm tipping my hand just a little bit here. You know, I have to ask you, do you think it's that privacy has just gone and it just can't come back? Yeah, I think it has to a real extent, and I think it's going to get even worse. And I, I don't actually think that government is the principal agent for it. I think it's market no. forces. I mean, I think that, you know, Google makes more money the more it knows about you. Credit card companies make more money the more they learn about you and sell to other people. We have with credit, let's just take something that would might seem somewhat benign, uh, credit r- rating, right? We all have a credit rating. That is derived information about you that a third party basically looked at data points that exist out in the world that you don't personally own, but you generated. You bought this here, you bought that there, you failed to pay this debt on time, you did pay that debt on time. They say, he is a 731, or whatever the number is. So that's their IP, that conclusion about you. And we've lived with that for decades. Well, a few years ago, there was research, I think it came out of Cambridge, where they determined with a tiny number of likes on Facebook, these researchers determined that they could dis- discern the sexual orientation, uh, the political leanings, and one or two other very, very personal effects about somebody. This was with public likes on Facebook a few years ago. Now, take that, and that is like baby stuff compared to the data that Facebook itself has on you, which is infinite, essentially, relatively speaking, and the sophistication that they've probably developed in the few years since that study was made. We live in an environment in which companies and third parties can infer pretty much everything about us, and that's their intellectual property. We have no say in that. So I think, yeah, pro- privacy is is withered and it's going away further. I think when we get into an era of ubiquitous augmented reality, which is probably 10-ish years off, where basically everybody who's carrying a smartphone now has caved in and started wearing augmented reality glasses that point, I think every interpersonal interaction is going to be recorded and cached somewhere, every one of them. And, you know, I don't think there's anything we can do about that. I, I, don't th- I know that I don't have to write an autobiography. All I have to do is get the data cache of my purchases off the Safeway card. Yeah, your my- purchases and all the email you sent and everything else. And, you know, maybe someday, a, you know, a super AI author that has deprived me of my livelihood by writing better books than me. <laughs> And this is this is playful, but entirely plausible. It'd be kind of interesting if you said, okay, AI author, here's all my email, and you can find all my other stuff online. Here's the passwords to my bank and my credit cards. And then out pops this page turner, this <laughs> fabulous biography of you with all these wonderful quotes and you know things that you've said and just your whole story in this page turning with the person you hated the most in fifth grade is like the villain, you know? And like, there's plot twists. Like, oh, yes, you got a C in that class, but then you got an A two quarters later. Like, yeah, your autobiography is out there. You know, in the 
The way this book is written, the prose is really fascinating because A, you have a lot of styles. You have that really bad science fiction novel oh, yeah. style. You have um, the AIs and it, the AIs characters, the regular human characters. All the bloggers yeah, have very, very the, different voices. The yeah. bloggers, yeah. So talk about integrating those prose voices. And did you write the different pieces at different times when you wanted to write, say, you have a fabulous character who calls herself Net Girl. Yeah. I, and I mean, I love Net Girl. it seems like somebody who's real. I mean, it's you're, you're, again, that's predictive powers to the, it's not even predictive powers. It's like you jetted a few months into the future and saw it. So talk about uh, creating and corralling in those voices. Well, so what I did is I have, um, you know, there's, there's kind of... Um, it's probably six-ish main-ish characters. Mm-hmm. You know, you can count it depending on how you count them. But let's call it that. And uh, then there are these very, very voicey bloggers, whistleblowing being another one, oh. and whistleblowings, and that girl, and, and 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 others as well. And so what I did is, as I was writing the story, it's like, okay, Dana's going to speak now, and Mitchell's going to respond, and then Dana's going to say something else. And I did my best to really honed distinctive voices for all of them as I was writing. And the Net Girl pieces, I, I loved writing those. And I wrote them as they came up as I was oh. writing the story, uh-huh. you know. But then I'm a, I'm a relentless editor. I love to edit, actually. I edit manically as I'm writing. I edit on the screen constantly, as I think most of us do to some degree. Then when I have a chunk that's, you know, five, ten or more pages, I'll print that and I'll edit with this really fine-tipped red pen. And just make all kinds of changes that just eluded me when I was on the screen. And I'll type those in, and I'll do it again and again and again with a red pen. And I gradually asymptotically approach something that feels very refined. And so the first edit, it looks like I dipped the page in red ink. It's gory, you know. And then, you know, and I'll do this over a period of days. I'll be writing something new, but I'll always be, you know, re-editing and re-editing this stuff from two, three, four, five days ago. And it asymptotically gets to the point where there's less and less and less and less and less red. Like, okay, now I feel like I'm honed. And then, you know, months later, I'll go back and revisit the entire chapter and I'll kind of go through a similar process, although with less red ink. You know, I've, I've grown as a writer over this time. I've gotten to know my characters better. But then at the very end, you know, thank God for, for you know, the, the search uh, feature of modern word processors. I will create, you know, documents that are everything that Dana says, everything that Tarek says, everything that Mitchell says, everything that wow, Ellie says. That's a great idea. And then what I do is I read, okay, this is Tarek, you know, page after page after page of Tarek. You know, he's kind of a secondary character. He says a lot in the whole sweep of the book. And I've got everything he utters. And I'm like, okay, what are the quirks of his speech that I really like, that I find very inherently him or I find endearing or whatever it is? Now, let me infuse all that. And whoa, that is just not something Tarek would say because it's inconsistent with the other 30 page things that he says in these few pages here. And, and so then that's how I really finally you know, punch up those sounds. And so the, 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 there's like a certain music to the way Dana, who's one of my very favorite characters, talks. And there's definitely a, an internally consistent voice. With that, so with that girl, I printed up these seven or eight blog posts or more of hers and just read them in succession and said these, like, let's let's 
cohere this voice. Wow, that's really interesting. And it's fun, <laughs> too. I like it. It's really fun. So, I like that part. So I, I've talked to many writers. I've never seen talk to anybody who has used technology in that particular manner. You're like the first person to like the first bird to pick up a stick and poke it in the oh, hole. It's really cool. Yeah. No, it's really, it's, it's, and that's a fun part. I like, I like those weird parts of editing, you know? Oh, that, I can see why. It's just like you have made the writing process more fun for yourself. Oh, totally. I love it. Uh, yeah. You know, um, the big money's in movies. Mm -hmm. I don't, this does not, I, this is a wonderful story. It doesn't, I, you know, I, I it seems like it'd be difficult to adapt, although it could. I you couldn't some. possibly cram this into two and a half hours. Yeah, you I you couldn't possibly. I, no, I wouldn't say. I, I don't even know. Just by virtue of the way it's narrated. Yeah. I mean, uh, by because the power of this book is that you immerse us in this narrator. Yeah. And, and by the end of the book, your butt is kicked by virtue of the way you voice the narrator. A movie just doesn't do that. Yeah, so it's an interesting problem. I mean, there, there's that dimension to it, and then there's also the fact that this is a 547-page book with a <laughs> lot going on, and a lot oh, yeah. that goes on outside of it. Actually, I'd like to talk about the podcast at some point, because mm -hmm. there's stuff that exists outside of the book that's very inherent to it. But, so it, it simply, I concluded long before I even finished the first draft, I do not want this to be a movie, mm -hmm. despite the fact that, yeah, that pays rather well. I'm glad, because it's... it's but I want, what I want is for it to be a TV series mm -hmm. because I think the most unhurried, patient, sophisticated on-screen storytelling in the world right now is happening on TV. Mm -hmm. And it's because people binge watch. And so people who are creating, you know, smart television shows can count on people stringing together the, the episodes. Oh, yeah. Um, exactly. And so you can turn something into a 13-hour movie for all intents and purposes. And so I really think that we're going through a platinum age of television right now. The mm -hmm. TV that, that... I don't watch a lot of TV. I'm selective about what I watch. But that which I watch is so smart. You know, it is so far, whether it is... You know, playful comedy like Rick and Morty, I think it has some of the smartest writing I've ever seen on television, mm -hmm. despite the fact that they kind of hide it in this unserious veneer. You know, whether it's, you know, the classics, I mean, the things that are going to be like, like you know, Jane Austen and so forth are classics from the 19th century. I think a few generations hence, people are going to look at shows like Breaking Bad and The Wire and Game of Thrones as classics mm -hmm. of our era. You know, so that whole range, there's so much smart and interesting things that are going on in TV. And so I've actually been working on that. Um, I'm not sure I'm supposed to announce any, anything. What I can say is um, I've gotten into business with um, uh, CBS Studios um, who create yay. shows for, you know, they, they don't just create shows for CBS nor indeed even for CBS networks of which there are many that go beyond the main CBS broadcast network. Their, their production company, they're obviously have a very deep affiliation with CBS and all of its related networks, but they've produced things for, you know, all the online players and probably in the course of their history, every network in existence. So we're working on something which could be fabulous. And it's taken quite a few giant steps forward over the last, Yay. even over the last couple of weeks. But it also has at least two giant steps left to go before anything ends up, you know, on the air or on the wires or on the cables or whatever it is that things end up on. But, we're, you know, I've been working really hard on that because I think that a really a, a fundamentally different story, because you can't 
glue something from one medium onto another. Right. I think we could create something that's new and weird and wonderful and thoughtful and has some of those... There's a fun show I love called Crazy Ex-Girlfriend right now. It's on the CW network. Uh-huh. And they do all these weird, playful things with narration. And like every episode out of the blue at some point turns into like a musical number. Uh-huh. And they're always doing it in these weird, different ways. And like shows like that, and there are many others, the British version of the Sherlock Holmes series does all oh. kinds of ingenious little visual things of how they depict an SMS going out of a phone. And it's it just, there, there's so much brilliant stuff that's happening on the small screen now. I think that could be a really cool destination for this. Now, another destination for this book is your podcast. Yes. Which is really fascinating because it, it's like a, a gloss, I think. It's, it, yeah, that's how it started. Yeah, I mean, it's, so talk about creating that gloss, choosing, choosing the, the people you've talked to, some amazing talents. Yeah, so um, as I was writing the book, I did a lot of research. I interviewed a lot of people because I did want it to be grounded in present tense technology and science. And... In doing that, I learned quite a bit more than I'd ever thought I'd know about quantum computing, synthetic biology, about consciousness, where it comes from, and a bunch of other topics. And I found myself tempted at many points in writing the book to go on like a 20-page digression about how cool synthetic biology is, but that's lousy storytelling. You don't, you don't get to do that and still write a novel. And so sometime toward the end, I was talking to a friend of mine, a guy named Tom Merritt, who's a big podcaster. Mm -hmm. And in this conversation, the idea came up about like, well, maybe, you know, I should do a podcast that's connected to the book. And so Tom gave me boundless help and was my de facto co-host for the first eight episodes of it. And so basically, I decided to do five very in-depth interviews with world-class experts in technologies, science, and also sociological issues that the book deals with. So there is an episode on augmented reality. There's an episode on quantum computing. There's an episode on synthetic biology. And in all of these cases, and so they go into depth on these issues that are important to the book in ways that you couldn't do within the story. And I figured I'll do eight of these, and it'll be a fun project. And when I'm done, it'll be this really cool thing that sits out there for free for readers of the book or non-readers. You don't have to read the book to learn all there is to learn from the podcast on, you know, consciousness. Oh, no. no, The the only thing is at the tail end, my, you know, my co-host, Tom and I, I would do the interview on my own. He and I would chatter a little bit up front, teeing up the interview. Then there'd be the interview. And then he and I would have you know, about 10 or 15 minutes of banter at the end where we relate the interview back to the book and also talk about, you know, 60, 70 pages of the book. So that part is for readers, but if you're not a reader, you just skip that part, right? Mm -hmm. And so I figured I'll do eight of these and that'll be fun. And about midway through, I was like, this is really fun. I'm having a lot of fun with this. And there's all these other people that I'd like to talk about, talk to. And there's all kinds of things that fascinate me that aren't in the book, like nanotechnology, like space exploration, you know, like material science. Like, there's just so much stuff. And so I decided um, to continue with the podcast. And so I've been doing an episode a week, which has been frenetic because I do a huge amount of upfront preparation for my interviews. And I'm booking people like I'm booking people like Sam Harris, like Ev Williams, a co-founder of Twitter and and who runs Medium.com. We're going to be interviewing him later this week. I'm, uh, Chris Anderson, who runs the TED conference. Um, Chris Anderson, another Chris Anderson, who ran, who was the editor-in-chief of Wired Magazine for 12 years and now runs this really important drone company. We talk all about drones. And so booking these people and then doing the kind of prep 
that honors the fact that they're giving me a couple hours of their time. And they're trying to structure an interview that doesn't, you know, that really will help, I think, the listener get to a top percentile understanding of drones, augmented reality, quantum computing, whatever we're talking about, like really carefully structuring an interview that can help these people who are expert convey that expertise in the form of a spontaneous engaging conversation. Holy cow, it's a lot of work. But um, it's been fun, and I'm going to be doing it at least until the end of the year. And if, if I haven't killed over from sleep deprivation by then, I may keep marching on for quite some time. No. And, oh, and by the way, for those who are curious, the, the podcast is also called After On. It's called the After On Podcast. So. And you load it up on your normal podcast library yep. purveyor. Yep. Have you started a new book yet? Or did you start one like 10 years ago that you're thinking might be, <laughs> might be halfway done? Well, I have a whole other set of Amazon posts that are just waiting <laughs> to be turned. In. No, I'm kidding. Um, you know, I haven't simply because both the podcast and this TV vector um, mm-hmm. are taking up all my time right now. I would imagine. Yeah. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, you know, ride these things at least until the end of the year and then do a little bit of soul searching and see, you know, how many folks are listening to the podcast. I'm not doing anything for money on it yet. So I don't have a Patreon account. I'm not doing advertising yet. And so I think at the end of the year, I'll look at it and say, can I turn this into a source of income? Because I do need to make money. I need to make rent and everything else like everybody does. Or is this something that should just be, you know, low-key hobby? Maybe I do an episode a month. You know, is the TV thing going to fly? Like I said, we still have a couple of giant hurdles in front of us. So look at where everything is, you know, kind of like December, January. And part of me really is really psyched to write another novel right now. I can see why. Oh, yeah. this, This thing is really fun. It's like a giant wave. And it doesn't crash. It just launches you. I can see it launches the reader into a rather unsettling but fun world. Hopefully fun, (laughs) but hopefully unsettling. You're not supposed to be settled. No, no, this is not a settled book. Yeah. Uh, And I can see that would have the same effect on you as well. Yeah. It it was, um, it's only my second novel. And it's so different from the first one. I love the first one. Mm -hmm. But this is categorically a much more ambitious book. And, um, you know, I have no idea what I would do next, but I'm sure it would be a doozy. And, and writing this was so much fun. Like, I just, I took great delight in probably every hour, whether I was editing or writing fresh stuff or doing research or checking typos. Even that feels good because it's like sanding and polishing a piece of, like, furniture that you worked exactly. on. Yeah. That's what this feels like, a well-worked piece of furniture. Yeah. Oiled. All sorts of gears. It's like an organic computer almost. It looks like a cabinet on the inside, outside on the yeah. inside. It's fifteen brains. And and and, I, and that like that precision and the many months of honing teeny teeny tiny things. And I don't think, frankly, anybody, including my editor, would necessarily notice that I really worked this sentence so that the cadence of it and the words are just you know like I really love that aspect of writing. And so that you know, a that's one reason why. I, there's sometimes five-year gaps between my books, um, but I love all aspects of it. So I'm ready to take it on again, of course. It sounds like you're having fun and we're having fun. I've been speaking with Rob Reed. His new novel is After On. Thank you for joining me, Rob. Thank you for having me. It's been huge fun.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.